So, Father, it's in the name of Jesus that again we come before you. And we've declared, yes, you're the way maker. And yes, we trust in you, Jesus. And that is sweet. And, and yet so often we just don't when things don't go our way or, or when change is too hard or where we find ourselves somewhere we don't really want to be. We, we put up our hands and we thumb our nose and God forbid, but we even in very, very explicit ways, we let you know that we don't want what you're offering. Forgive us. And speak to us. So that in this moment, we might have what we've not yet received that you want to give. So that in this moment, we might learn that which we've not yet learned that you want us to learn. But really, Lord, so that we might become that which we've not yet become that you want us to become because you don't want just a transactional relationship with us. You want to transform us into your image. So, God, please use me. And you know, you and I talk a lot about how I'm not worthy. And, and you know the real me. And So, God, I pray that my words would be your words today and my thoughts would be your thoughts and that the end result of this would be that miracle of redemption that someone would come to know you and and that your kingdom would expand and that your will would be done and that our lives would be transformed because we're in this place and for that we say yours is the kingdom yours is the power and yours is the glory forever in the name of Jesus amen Jeremiah Chapter 29, God's Word begins to describe explicitly what's taking place there. The king Nebuchadnezzar, he had big plans for the children of Israel. He didn't follow what some evil kings would have done. He, he didn't expel them or exterminate them. That, that happens throughout history, right? That's happening with the Uyghur people in Asia even today. And so finally, our, our government took a stand and said, this is not okay. That happened to the Jewish people under Hitler's regime, right? The extermination, the, the sought-after extermination of an entire group of people. We've seen it repeatedly in history. That's not what Nebuchadnezzar was doing. Nor was he enslaving them and subjugating them. We've seen that throughout history too, to, to show we're more powerful by putting you under us. No, his plan was more to assimilate or incorporate this group of people. Because he knew what the enemy today knows, that if, if we who are in the world get the world into us, <laughs> we lose our power and effectiveness. So if Babylon got into the children of Israel, then man, Nebuchadnezzar would have really accomplished his goal. And so God has to address this, and that's what begins to take place in Verse 1 of chapter 29, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests and the prophets and all the people. So this is everybody. This is a letter to everybody. And that's important because just like all of the Bible, remember there's a specific context at a point in time. There's a general context that usually can apply to everybody. And then there's another specific context where God may be working in your life. 
And so when we gather on a Sunday, usually what takes place is we are taught a little about that specific context and time. We're reminded about the general context that everybody on every seat can relate to. And then we ask the Holy Spirit to speak into that specific context in our lives. So these are to all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Who took them into exile? Okay, look at it there. It's in your Bible in verse 1. Who took the children of Israel into exile? Okay, Nebuchadnezzar. Okay. Well, this was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. So this is after people like the royal family that Daniel was a part of. They had been gone. So Daniel's in Babylon. This letter was sent by the hand of Elisha, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, and, and Zedekiah. You know, a lot of times people talk about what's the first thing you do when you get to heaven? I think one of the first things I'm going to do after I've spent a a few million years with Jesus face-to-face, I'm going to go look for all these people whose names I mispronounced for so many years and just give them a personal personal apology. (laughs) So whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, it said, now here we get into it, verse 4, thus said the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, hold on a second. Who sent them into exile? Yeah, be careful because we serve a sovereign God. And sometimes you find yourself in a situation and you're pointing the finger at how you got there. And yet really it's a part of the plan of a sovereign God. Verse 5, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives and sons and daughters, take wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, do not decrease, notice verse 7, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie they are prophesying in your name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed in Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and and I will hear you, and you will seek me and find me, and when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This, my friends, is the Word of God. And there's a big idea that I want you to grasp as we dive in to these verses. Here it is. God is at work for your good and His glory, and He wants to use you to accomplish His plan. God is at work all around you. Sometimes you see Him, sometimes you don't. He's working for your good. He's working for His glory. But don't miss this. He wants you 
to be a part of his plan. So there's three things that just jump off the pages from this passage of Scripture that are relevant to us and why we are here, why we exist as a church, why when we become a follower of Christ, He doesn't just beam us to heaven, but He leaves us here where we are. The first thing is this. God wants us to give our lives to the places where He's planted us. Give your life to the place where God has planted you. So here they are in exile. They're captives, aliens in a foreign land. And remember what God said in verse 5. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens, eat the produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. This was a specific message. He was saying, all right, you've been staying on the outskirts. You've been resisting. Stop it. Stop isolating and start participating. And I have to tell you, throughout history, those of us who've sought after God, after the New Testament, those who followed Christ, man, this is a balance that is hard to navigate, isn't it? Because we know we're supposed to be in the world, but we're not of the world. And so as a result, sometimes we find ourselves hiding behind our walls and we're isolated from the very ones that God has put us there to impact. And God is saying to the children of Israel, so don't just survive. I I want you to thrive. Or as the cliche says, he's saying, bloom where you're planted. Stop waiting for when I get over here, things are going to get better. Do it now. Or as we would say when I was growing up, take off your shoes and stay a while. I've spent my life around people that have a, when I get their mentality, and usually it relates to their faith. Boy, I'm going to get involved in church when when I get out of college, and then they're out of college, and and they're newly married, and they say, we're going to get involved in church after we've been married for a little while, and and then they have kids, and and they say, we're going to get involved in church when our our kids are a little more healthy and and grown, and then they begin to grow up, and there's soccer and dance and gymnastics and basketball, and they say, we're going to get involved in church when life's just not so busy, and then all of a sudden, their kids are gone, and, and they have not prioritize the things of God and and their kids watch them marginalize the things of God and and all of a sudden their kids are not following after God and they're not following after God and their life is, is passing them by and they've missed the opportunity. I think God is often saying, stop waiting for me to change your location and start evaluating why I've put you there, which is your vocation. Vocation means more than a job. It it means your calling. What if God has placed you where you are as a part of your calling as a follower of Christ? Well, what if as a student he sent you to the University of South Florida or the University of Tampa or Hillsborough Community College because he knows that the nations are represented there? What if he's placed you in this part of the world because he knows he's placed the world in this part of Florida? Florida. 
What has God caused you to do here? What are you here for? Do you think you're any different than the children of Israel? They were strangers. You sometimes feel out of place. They were exiles. You often think you don't fit. They were foreigners. And yet God told them to settle down. He was saying, yes, I have a plan, and you are a part of the plan. That's why I clarified for you how they got there. In verse 1, it says Nebuchadnezzar put them into exile. But in verse 4, and then again in verse 14, God said, I put you there. Where has God put you that he wants to use you? God was saying, I have a plan for my people, but I also have a plan for the city. And my people are the plan for the city. What if God puts you right where you are right now so that you can make an impact for him and that you can make a difference for his glory? By the way, in case you're wondering, that's exactly what the Bible says. In Acts 17 in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit of God inspired Dr. Luke to tell us through the Apostle Paul that, that God determines our boundaries. So you thought you chose where you were going to live? Think again. God was orchestrating this part of his plan. What if you stopped thinking about where you're going next and started thinking about what you're going to do here now? I'm going to say that again because I think it was good. <laughs> what if you stop thinking about what you're going to do next and, and start really asking God, what do you want me to do right here, right now? Like the children of Israel in Babylon we, the church, we, Christ followers, we struggle to find our place in society. And too often we run away because we're different. You see, the Bible calls Christians those very names that we've been using to describe the children of Israel. We're called resident aliens. We're called strangers and sojourners. We're called citizens of a different kingdom. This world is not our home. In this world, we won't find our hope. And yet, God has placed us here. We struggle because we're different, but we also struggle because we don't like change. We see this especially in larger metropolitan areas and cities where communities constantly change, like the one around our central campus. This campus is located in Temple Terrace, Florida. First golf course community in the great sunshine state. A place that at a time was the place to be in the Tampa area. And like every community that's ever existed, it changes over time because we change. We get older, new people move in, some people move out. And you know what the church across America has done? When the community changes, the church runs away. It doesn't look like us anymore. That's not my people. I don't feel like I know anyone. In fact, that's how the megachurch movement grew in our society. I wish I could say most of our large churches existed because they were evangelistic in nature and reaching more and more people, but it's not. It's the attractional model and the Walmart mentality. The attractional model says... 
if we have the best preaching, if we have the best music, if our bathrooms and our nurseries don't smell mad, then maybe we'll have more people. And the Walmart mentality says, hey, if we're just bigger, then we'll put all the little ones out of business. And yet if there's one thing a worldwide pandemic has taught us, it's that the intractional model is not enough. Because when the personality is not there and the, the programs don't exist and the place you gather can't be met in, you had better have something else. But we run away. Whether it's white flight or in a place like Temple Terrace, Muslim flight, our community's changing and so we leave. What if instead of running away from that which is different from us, we actively said, God, you placed me here. How can I be a part of your plan? Well, what if always searching and seeking to find that which is better, we said, Lord, how can you use us to make here better? What if instead of thinking what's best for me, we began to think what's best for my city, for my community, for this place where I live? What if instead of always asking, why am I here? We begin saying, I am here for you. That was God's message to the people, the children of Israel. And it makes sense. Think of our greatest comfort from God. What is the name of, of Jesus that we're taught in the Christmas story that gives you the greatest comfort? It's probably the name Emmanuel. Why? Because what does Emmanuel mean? God is with us. We find comfort and we find peace from knowing our God is here. What if we begin to realize that the people around us, the people in our community, the people in our city will find comfort and peace when the love of God through us is here. And that's what this four campaign is all about. On each of our campuses in each of those communities, we're, we're saying we are here. Every one of our campuses is in a community that's changed, and yet we're saying we're not running away. We're here for you, and we're really suggesting that we spend a lot of resource on this central campus because that's where our largest resource is. And the idea is let's reposition this campus structurally to position us to accomplish our mission for generations to come. Let's deal with what has been decades of deferred maintenance and let's improve so that we might drive a stake into the ground here in this community and say, we are here for you. We are here for you. We are here for you. What would happen in your individual life if you committed this to living in that manner? Giving your life to the place where God has planted you. What if you assumed that God was just going to leave you where you are? How would you live differently for him? 
First, we see that we're to give our life to the place God has planted us. And by the way, I can't do that if it's all about me. If it's all about me, I'm a consumer, not a contributor. And in church, here's the way it plays out. If it's all about me, if I don't like the preaching, I leave. And I usually use an excuse, whether it's accurate or not, I say, I'm not getting fed. That's the same reason you stop going to a restaurant. You don't like what you're getting fed. That's a consumer. Or you say, I don't like the music. Or I don't like this change. It's all about me. What if you said, it's not about me, God. You've put me here. I don't understand it, but I'm going to bloom where I planted. I'm going to take my shoes off and stay a while. I'm going to give my life here. Number two, he says, give your love to the people around you. That's, what ama- that's what's amazing. He didn't just say stay there. He didn't just say build houses. He went beyond that. Look at verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now think about that. They were captives. <laughs> this was an evil king. And the God they serve is saying... Seek their welfare and pray for them, your enemies. They would understand this because we know in the Psalms it says, pray for the peace of where? Pray for the peace of where, does the Bible tell us? Jerusalem. And love the city, it says in the Psalms. Well, now God is saying to the same people who are told to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, hey, you pray for your enemy and seek their welfare. And that word welfare is literally that biblical word shalom. And we hear that and we think of peace. But it's so much more. There's not really a good English word to describe that word shalom because it's, it's comprehensive. It's all-inclusive. It speaks to flourishing in every dimension socially and economically and physically and spiritually. So God is saying, you pray for them that they will flourish in every way possible. And you can't do that without loving them. That's why in the New Testament, Jesus would remind us again and again, you've got to love those who hate you. You've got to love those who persecute you. And then he modeled it, didn't he? As he was dying on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What if we begin to live in our little corner of the world with that mentality? And we didn't see those who are different just as different. But we saw them as people to love for the mission of God. If we did that, even those of us who hang out in church a lot, we would ask a different question. We wouldn't say, how's our church doing? We would say, how's our city doing? How's our our community doing? And guys, it's not doing good. Did you know that when the conquistadors came into Tampa Bay, they named it the Bay of the Holy Spirit. Now we're known around the world as one of the destinations for sexual tourism. It's one of the hot spots for human trafficking. 
Our streets are filled with homelessness and, and drug abuse. We're not doing well. The church is not doing great. Churches close their doors every week. What if we loved our city differently? The truth is, people are moving to the cities. And they're moving here like crazy. All around every one of our campuses. But just in general, all around the world. Did you know that every month around the world, 5 million people are moving to cities? Some of you were cheering on the Atlanta Braves last night. Did you know that would be like saying a city the size of Atlanta, 5 million people, springing up new around the world every month? There are places in Africa, for example, where the countrysides are becoming desolate because people are moving to the big cities. And and you know what Christians are doing around the world? Oh, they're different. They're running out. We're saying we would like to go where we're more comfortable, where the pace is a little slower, where it's easier for us. What if we changed our mentality and we ran to those we're supposed to be loving? How would it look? Can I give you three examples that we can relate to? In Temple Terrace, our our little community where our central campus is located, it's now considered to be 25% Muslim. So how would loving well look? Well, it may look like getting involved in our Esau classes that take place on this campus five days a week. Where four days of this week, we could say there'll probably be more Muslims on our campus than there will Christians because they're coming on campus to learn English. And you don't have to be an English teacher You don't even have to know another language just to show up and love them. You you might need to be able to pour some Diet Coke into a a cup or or, or put out some napkins and and serve some donuts. You you might just need to be able to sit there and and talk to them because they, they would love to have communication and conversation in English. But that's just a simple way. At our Six Mile campus, did you know that every Friday night we feed hundreds of people Let me explain that to you. We have folks that come onto the campus for a hot meal, a free hot meal. Most of them don't do that just because they'd rather come there than the Golden Corral. They they go that because they they can't afford another meal. So this week, let's say about 70 folks did that, and they hear the gospel every week. And and then let's say another 70 to 100 people are are met out on the streets because we send out teams to feed homeless people with meals as well. And then to the tune of another five to 700 folks, we're, we're giving out meals that they can take with them from our food pantry every Friday night. And how does that happen? People like you, serving the community, serving the city, showing love. A lot of other examples, but one on our Lake Carroll campus, we've realized about 50% of that community immediately around that campus is Hispanic. So what do we do? We started a Spanish service on Friday nights and just saying, hey, we, we want to do whatever we can to get in there and to love those around us. What are you doing to love the people that God's put around you? Let me just remind you, loving them doesn't mean we become like them. No, it it means showing them how we're different. That's what this was about in Jeremiah's day, and it's true in our day. God's mission is, is not changed. 
You understand that, right? He doesn't want you to be the hero of the story, so take a deep breath, relax. You don't have to be able to do everything you think you can't do. He's the hero of the story. This is not your mission. This is his mission. It's not your plan. It's his plan. He just wants you to get involved in what he's already doing right underneath your nose. We're different. The New Testament calls it ambassadors. And churches throughout modern history have taken that term and, and we've kind of programmatized it. And so in my church growing up, I, as a little boy, I was a royal ambassador. We even had a song, I'm royal ambassadors, ambassadors for Christ. What's an ambassador? An ambassador is someone from country A who's living in country B to represent country A to the people in country B. And God says, if you're a Christ follower, you are his ambassador. And that means though you're not from this kingdom, you're living in this kingdom to represent the king. And so you may have to learn to speak the language in this kingdom. You may have to adapt to some of the cultures of this kingdom, but you don't blend in because you're different. You're an ambassador for the king. That's who we are. And when we realize that, boy, it makes a difference. It did in the early church. The early church grew by sharing the gospel and serving people when no one else would. Did you know that in AD 250, a plague struck the Roman Empire? We're not the only one to suffer from a pandemic. It killed an average of 5,000 people a day. At that time, Christians were only 2% of the known population. And yet they shone brightly. They made an impact. Dionysus, the bishop of Corinth, reported that most of our brother Christians showed up with unbounded love and loyalty. They never stopped sparing themselves, thinking only of one another. In heedless danger, they took charge of the sick. They attended to their every need, ministering to them in Christ. With them, they departed this life serenely and happy. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves. And they died instead. But he went on to say, but with non-Christians, everything was quite different. They deserted those who began to be sick. They fled from their dearest friends. But the church ran in. That's how you show love. That's what a true friend is anyway, right? You show up when everybody else runs out. We run to those that everyone is running from. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, all right, but I'm, this is too much for me. Where do I start? Here you go. Everybody do this. That's where you start. It starts with one. One person making a decision to pray for and share the good news with one person. Who's that one person in your family? Or the one person at your work or in your class? Who's the one person in your neighborhood that you know they're not walking with God? They don't seem to have a relationship with Jesus. Who's your one? I want you to think about that name and ask God to give you the courage to love them well. You give your life to the place God has planted you. You give your love to the people around you, but you give your best to the one who is for you.
So this is where this passage gets interesting because in verse 8 and 9, Jeremiah, speaking for God, says, don't listen to all the prophets who are telling you fake news. Right? It would be like me standing up. Imagine me standing up and say, hey, there's a lot of preachers out there that are telling you some bad stuff. Don't listen to them. Oh, so in fact, let me just do that. There's a lot of preachers out there telling you some bad stuff. Don't listen to them. And it's related to exactly the same thing Jeremiah was saying because he said, there's these false prophets and they're telling you, it's going to be okay. Don't worry. God's going to come back and get you in two years. And God says, I didn't tell them that. I never said that. Don't listen to them. He's going to go on to say, in fact, it's going to be 70 years. Some of you will die there. And some of you have been impacted by that same kind of false teaching today. You've had somebody tell you, if you just do this or if you just do that, everything's going to be happy in your life. You're never going to have problems. In all my life, I've watched as well-intended people buy into that kind of thinking, and then they face the problems, and they don't have any choice but to reject that kind of God and walk away from his church. Don't listen to that. No, God was saying, it's not always going to be easy, and, and the plans aren't going to work out the way you think, but I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then you'll call on me and come and pray to me and I will hear you and you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. What is God saying? I think he's saying it's not going to be easy. And it's not going to be quick. But it's going to be worth it. In our instantaneous culture where we want the blessings right now, sometimes we think it's got to be easy and often we think it must be quick. I'm here to tell you some bad news. Too often it's neither. But I've got good news. It is worth it. You still have the promise of God. You have the hope that he offers. So God was saying, I am for you. It's just different than you think. All you've got to do is seek me with all your heart. Why does God use that term all the way throughout scripture? Why does he say things like the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro, seeking the one who is willing to give them his whole heart? It's because God wants your best. That's what he's given you and that's what he wants from you. I know what I've had planned for you. You're a part of that plan. So just give me your all and let me unveil it so that you can go on. This is a reminder of the gospel. When we were hopeless, when we were helpless, God gave us his best. He gave us his son. That's what that, that verse means, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Well, just as that message is to us, Jeremiah had a specific message for the people of his day. But the principle is true. Remember, God is at work for our good and his glory.
And he wants to use you to accomplish his plan. So a few questions. Are you getting in on what he's doing around you? Have you planted where you are? Are you seeking him with all your heart? Are you holding back? I was thinking about this early this morning and thought, you know, all of us, even Christ followers, we're going to stand before God. There's two different judgments. You understand that, right? There's the great white throne judgment where there's that determination whether or not you're a follower of Jesus, whether or not your name is written down in the Lamb's book of life. But then there's a judgment seat of Christ where we stand for God and we account for what we've done with what he's given us. I want to be able to say I gave you my best. And what a shame to say, oh Jesus, I love you. But I I gave my best to working hard so I could have that place at the beach. Or that place in the mountains. Or that place at the lake. Oh Jesus, I I love you, but I have have to tell you, I I gave my best to my kids. So I I know I wasn't around much for a lot of years. And and I know some of that, that resource could have spent differently, but I gave my best to my kids, Jesus. I gave my best to my career. I gave my best so I could drive a new car when I wanted to. What if instead I could say I gave my best for you? That's what I'm asking you to do today. To be able to say, Jesus, from this moment on, by your grace and for your glory, I want to give my best for you. Because that's exactly what Jesus did. Just think about his journey. He left a pretty roomy place (laughs) to come to a stinky city. He was a sojourner, a foreigner. This world was not his home. And yet, boy, did he love well. Romans 5 tells me that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. You know, it's one thing to think about I'm supposed to love my enemies. It's another thing to realize that the Bible says I was an enemy of God. And yet he loves me. And then when he died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, he truly gave us his best. What will I give to him? We've said a lot today. I want to ask you to make it very practical. The first thing is this. Do do you know the one who gave his best for you? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? If not, you're in a safe place where you can understand that no matter what God's seen you do, He loves you. And He wants to have a relationship with you. 
And it really is as simple as acknowledging that you need Him because of your sin, receiving His forgiveness, and then yielding and committing your life to Him. And in just a moment, there'll be pastors from this church that are standing here, and there are people that can even communicate with you online, and, and, and we want to talk to you if you need that relationship with Christ. I'm going to invite you to come and just tell us, I need Jesus. But most of us here profess to already have that relationship with Christ. So I... I want to ask you a question. How would your life look differently today if you started truly investing in living where you're planted? Not waiting till you graduate or waiting till you get married and waiting till you have that dream job or, or waiting till your children get to a certain stage of life or, or waiting till you're in retirement. But what if today you said, God, I don't know the future but I know where you've planted me. You're going to get my best. Oh, and one more thing. Who's your one? Who, who's that person that you're willing to say, God, I, I, will, I will drive down the stake. I will pray for this person, and I will look for the opportunities to share your truth. Please open the door. That one I, I'm going to give you a practical way to respond to. After I pray, as we begin to worship, just over here to my right, to your left on our central campus, there's a banner that says, for you. And here's what I want you to do if, if you're led. I want you to go and, and take one of the pens we provided and just write the first name of your one. And we want to join you in that prayer. And then make sure you come back and write that in, in your Bible or in the notes in your phone just as a reminder to pray. And if you're watching online, just you can write that first name in the context and our online pastor wants to just communicate with you. Yes, we'll record that and we'll pray. And, and that will be practical application for you saying, God, I get it. You've put me here for you. And you want me to live my life looking in my little corner of the world and saying... I'm here for you. Let's pray together. In the name of Jesus. Thank you, Father, for the time we've had in your word. Thank you for the truth. We sense your presence. God, I pray that you would give courage to respond. Lord, I pray if there be a person here today that does not have that relationship with you or perhaps are watching online, that, that you would give them courage to begin a conversation. Here in this room, Lord, that you would give them courage to step out of their seat and come take the hands of one of the pastors that will be standing at the front of this room and just say, I need Jesus. God, I pray that you would help all of us to think differently. Lord, that we'd stop thinking about what we might do someday and we would start thinking about what we can do and will do today. God, I, I pray that you would help us all to be mindful of our one. And Lord, that this simple exercise of writing down a first name would be a commitment in our lives for your glory. So Lord, use this time. This is for you. Even as I ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Would you stand together with us? Our pastors are here for you. You begin even right now to come to this board. You write down that first name as God leads you. Let's worship him together.